0: Hello, and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Uh, Well, This evening, or today, or this morning, or whenever you're listening to this podcast, uh, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Marie Wright. Hey, Marie.
1: Hi. Hi, Trevor.
0: Um, Would you be able to introduce yourself so uh, everyone knows what a legend you are?
1: (laughs) Aren't you supposed to be dead when you're a legend? Um...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. Or maybe I'm
1: dead. Who knows? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, my name's Marie Wright, and... um, I currently hold hold the role of President, Creation, Design and Development and Chief Global Flavorist for ADM Nutrition or ADM. Um, And obviously have spent the past 100 years or so in the flavor industry. So completely passionate, dedicated to... Um, the flavor industry, although my r- current role actually encompasses uh, a lot more than that, than just flavor. But uh, taste is always king. So, um, you know, I'm always rooting for, for the flavorists and all, very, uh, I would say, participating um, in education for flavorists and uh, promotion of the flavor industry in a positive um, you know, in a positive way. Uh, so, that's something that I committed to for for a number of years, um, you know, kind of talking about what we do and um, taking the mystery away from what we do, because I think that's uh, something that um, more educated people are, the, the, the more they're going to understand why things are flavored. Yeah, so, sure. you know, that's kind of the passion is flavor, but my my role right now is, you know, leading a team of 600 scientists. So um, I'm right across from pet, animal, human, health and wellness, you name it. It's like encompasses everything. So my other side of life is, is right building team. And that's why I have the team background. I'm very much about team, which is unusual sometimes for a flavorist um, mm-hmm. to be very focused on team knowing that uh, when we work as a team um, we we win essentially in whatever we do in life
0: everything's yeah. that collaborative so, journey
1: those are a couple of things just to you know to kind of start the conversation really so that's that's where I am now but it's been a journey to get here
2: for sure
0: and then hopefully we can delve a bit deeper into that 600 people
2: it's quite I'm sure it's quite an eclectic collection of people but is there kind of you kind of say, oh yeah they're a flavorist is there kind of not a certain characteristic but do you find flavorists are slightly different than other people who come with the different disciplines in in, in the business
1: yeah I mean they're you know flavorists it it, it are come in all shapes and sizes yeah. don't they um personality wise as well as obviously physical but um certainly um you know it's it's I think that's what makes the flavor is so interesting, very unique, quirky. Um, You know, I have to say that um, when uh, I came to ADM, I initially came to wild, actually, I moved from IFF to wild because I wanted to have an adventure and I met Dr. Wild. And if you ever have the pleasure to meet, uh, Dr. Wild, you'll realise he's such an amazing entrepreneur. So I went to Wild to build the flavour creation capability. And one of the one of the characteristics that I've never enjoyed about Flavorous is ego, and it's usually much stronger in perfumers. You know, they're they're uh-huh. they're definitely the, the 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 kings, if you like, of ego. But you do see it uh, in Flavorous. and um, you know that's. That, I suppose that goes to my kind of team. Uh, spirit in that, um, you know, when I was going to build this team of flavorists uh, globally, these, this team was going to be collaborative and have that lack of ego, certainly be creative, certainly be quirky, moody, all of it doesn't matter, um, you know, but but no room for, you know, I um, definitely had to be we um, so that was that was something that I, I I kind of installed in the team and as we you know we developed an academy of future flavorists I actually started that at ADM and you know all of the the, the graduates that are coming out of that are f- amazing there's no I there's a yeah. there's a we Um, so that that's you know, but flavorists are you want flavorists to be a little different, you want them to think differently, you want them to be a bit awkward and challenge, um, you know, and and take us to the next level. I think, you know, some in some ways, and maybe I'm digressing, but the flavor industry and flavor itself has been a bit dumbed down. Um, and I think you see a lot of the same out there. If I go out to Buy a peach yogurt; it just tastes the same. It doesn't really matter. It's just which company: Jivaden, IFF, any of them, because we've become a little bit less creative in this pressure of, you know, more corporate, corporate type of mm. feel, um, and less creative and novel. You know, when I started in the yeah. industry, it was so exciting. There was mm. so many new things, um, and it was, you know, I, I don't know the energy there. So it's getting that back. I think we've lost a bit of that. We've lost a bit of luster. Um, but so of the perfumers too. So um
0: <laughs> and I think it's intriguing. It's, it like touches on some other things in terms of like the commoditization of many different things. You know, so where you develop a new product and the first thing is well we need a, a vanilla, a chocolate, a strawberry, and then maybe you think about a banana um or maybe you think about these these kind of novel SKUs. But the main thing is like you need this base of like we need this kind of flavor, this kind of flavor. And I think people maybe uh, don't have the or haven't had the freedom enough to be truly creative and kind of just look outside the box a bit and yeah. think about things in a in a completely different way and, and kind of question everything. And I think that as a flavorist, you kind of have that uh, freedom, you know, yeah. often often you wouldn't necessarily have the freedom, but you have. The, the point within the, the whole life cycle of a product to be able to add that flair, to add the let's do it a bit differently and why. you know It, it creates the story, which is pretty cool. Um, I'm super intrigued by, by kind of your journey through um, and interested to hear, as other people will be, um, why, why did you or how did you get in excited about science? Where did it start even before university?
1: Yeah, I mean, I went to a grammar school, which was very science focused, a girls grammar school, it was very science focused. So I never, you know, this whole thing about women in, in science, it's I never felt yeah. that, even from, you know, being because I was in a school that, you know, from 11 to 18, that was encouraging women to focus on science. Um and for me personally, I was better at it than I was at English literature or something mm-hmm. like that. I, and was, I that, found was it that based in the UK? It easier. That was based in the UK, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hertfordshire Hart, and Essex High School in mm. Bishop Stortford, no less. Not that far from Haverhill. Yeah, very cool. Um, <laughs> still there. The, the school's still supposed to be very good. But, um, you know, so I, I, I think. Science was my journey. Um, it, as a very young kid, I always thought I wanted to be a vet. You know, I love animals, and but um, you know that 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 wore out. And uh, you know, I, I enjoyed chemistry, organic chemistry. It was easy. I'm a bit lazy, maybe as well. It was all a bit easy. Math <laughs> was easy, so that was my route, really. I, but it was never a big thing, as it is. You know, when I. I sort of came to the us and everyone talked about stem and women in science and we should be encouraging i'm like oh really i never felt that
3: didn't you know, feel like we I, had we old, a lot so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it never felt that way uh, about science and um you know and i value um the arts and, and 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 creativity i love art i love architecture i love things like that i mean that's obviously i'm that, that isn't the journey i've taken but i could very well imagine myself in the fashion world or or you know designing buildings or something Mm. like that so it's not you know but science was that that particular path and chemistry really was was something I enjoyed but then did not want to have a a career in chemistry
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so that's an interesting part of that especially because I think um, the, the role of a flavorist and also the work we do kind of is, is often discussed as being this intersection between arts and science. Um, but to me, especially, the, well, actually the reason that I started to, to think about this maybe slightly more in a more considered way is uh, I was actually sent by a, a previous mentor. So a senior flavorist when I was still training and uh, he sent me to um, the an art gallery in order to reconnect with this artistic side that apparently I was maybe lacking. And <laughs> uh, super surprisingly, they actually had an exhibition on at the same time that was um, exhibiting different daguerreotypes. So daguerreotypes that were released at the same time as uh, as these different portraits that were painted by uh, like uh, Renaissance painters now daguerreotype is like the the precursor to what became photographs you know so like photography and those things so it was like the things where you had to sit uh, directly in front of the lens for ages and then at the end you had a photo so there was always this initially there was like a, a disconnect between what something was captured in terms of real realistic um capturing versus a portrait that someone had painted so the daguerreotypes at the initial stages were obviously kind of a bit creepy because mm-hmm. you just had like a, a portrait of someone that had to be sitting still for, <laughs> for five minutes in order to capture it correctly. And then you had the, the counterpart, which was the painting, which obviously had breathed the life into the whole environment. So it was capturing more than reality. you know. And there was kind of definite um, relationships to that and creating flavors because we obviously are depicting nature but sometimes in that depiction of nature, we have the opportunity of like um, uh, creating these exacerbated like models of nature, you know, like a, a strawberry flavor that goes into a milkshake doesn't necessarily taste anything like a wild strawberry or like a, a the exact natural product, but you're able to make this caricature and therefore breathe more life into it. Mm, yeah. so, so it was kind of like the art is the science. It's not, it's not the, the meeting point. It's the fact that new technologies enable new ways of expressing artistic idea. Yeah, 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 for sure.
1: I mean, some of the most famous scientists were artists, too. I mean, Einstein is a great example of that. So it it is, yeah, it isn't like, oh, I've got my science brain uh, yeah. switched on now. And now I'll turn on my artistic brain and oh, we've got this great flavor. Um, it isn't like that. It's all mixed together. I, I kind of think that the analytical side that is about knowledge and knowledge, you need to have knowledge to be creative. Um, and, you mm-hmm. know, ultimately, mm-hmm. I don't I, I think obviously, there's some naturalness about, you know, genetic exposure to Having an ability, but um, you know, even if you think about pianists, you know they have to practice eight hours a day. Yeah. They're not just amazing. So even though they're talented, they still have to practice, and it's the same for 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 flavorists. We have to keep feeding ourselves with knowledge, um, and and that's the you know the analytical piece to me. That's uh, maybe you want to call it the science piece, the analytical mm. piece. And but if you don't have that, you don't have the freedom then to be creative. So I think yeah, that's exactly. kind of how yeah. I, I think about it. It's like, it, you know, knowledge kind of frees you up. So when, you know, yeah. you're training as a flavorist, when we put them through the the grill for three and a half years of, you know, going through everything. And you could very much say a lot of that's analytical and I mean, obviously they're creating flavors, but they can't get to that point of the freedom of being able to create something unless they have that, you know, foundation, if you like, behind them.
2: Yeah, Trevor um, and I were just discussing that before you came on, because again, talking like mentoring some flavorists in, in our business, you get the year one and year two flavors who just want to get to the end. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're very old fashioned people, like we believe in doing things from first principles or things, but and now there's so many shortcuts available. You know, there's you know, things have moved on as well. So, you know, it's kind of getting that discipline of, you know, as to go back to the art, you have to know the palette before you know how to put it together
1: yeah yeah and you and you're right like I remember I was at IFF and I went out for a lunch with a vendor whose name we will just keep you know to the side <laughs> now very quite famous in the vendor world nice guy and and we were chatting and he said you know Marie and actually he was an ex-IFFer at one point he goes you know Marie these days to be a flavorist, it's really easy. All, you, all you've got to do is—it's basically, you know, take a formula because you have access to all the formulas, mm. and you know, you can just tweak them, and that's it. There's no making things from scratch anymore. And I was so insulted, right? Initially, I was like, I wanted to, you know, I, I kept my mouth shut because I'm English and polite, and <laughs> but um, it was, it was, it, it. I felt. Insulted for the industry, insulted for the profession. You know, I know myself, I would spent so many hours, days, years, you know, on certain flavors, like grinding to, to make something original and different. But then I thought about it and I thought, he's kind of right in some ways, you know, and yeah. because not everybody has access to great training
3: mm-hmm. as yeah. a flavorist. Yeah.
1: And how else do people learn other than taking you know something and just tweaking it they can they can learn by that so you know I thought even though I was insulted by it it was I think there's some truth Mm -hmm. to it and as I've gone out and interviewed a lot of flavors as we built teams you know I've seen it I've seen how there's a very big difference to the ones that have been challenged to you know thrown in a lab and create from scratch versus those that have had you know just it's not really their fault but they haven't been challenged let's put it like that. Um, And unless you're put in that situation, you know, to make terrible flavors and suck for a while, you don't learn. No.
3: Um,
1: And unfortunately, also, there's an environment now where it doesn't necessarily allow for failure as well. Right. And, um, you know, and and really to be creative, you have to allow for that um, Mm -hmm. because you're going to learn from those Mm -hmm. failures. Right.
2: One of the things I love about innovation and thinking about innovation is like, again, when you give, we give people a Lego set, you know, some people just make what's on the, pi- what's on the box and then other people just get those blocks and just make loads of wonderful things, you know, and some of them might be the next flavor or something or not, but that's, you know, there is a, there is a balance between following a way to do things and then yeah. using your own expression to do things.
0: Yeah, yes. it's free. I guess it's it's freedom freedom within a framework, and yeah. you need to understand yeah. that framework. And in yeah. order to understand the framework, you need to have the experience of why. So when you're doing things, you're asking yourself why, and whether those whys are maybe uh, misconceptions. You know, we we pass on e- everything that you learn from other people. You 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 get it with a lot of baggage as well that you don't necessarily understand. So asking why is amazing and getting the opportunity to ask why is even more amazing. But it's about testing yourself to that limit and being thrown into the deep end in a bit, uh, in in a way thrown into the deep end to to be put under pressure to answer a question in your own words, you know, rather than the verbatim approach. And I think that's quite cool. That's It's like you now understand the framework let's see what you can do in this jungle gym, you know, and yeah. thinking about it kind of in that way, which is good. You mentioned shortcuts and there's, there are now apparently shortcuts in order to, uh, to get to a certain place. Yeah. First of all, I'd like to have a list of those um, presented to me, please, because I would like some of those shortcuts, sure. <laughs> but equally, <laughs> if you, if, if you think about like, like semantically what a shortcut is, and I try to think about these things in a, in, in chemical terms or chemistry ways, If you were trying to isolate a certain molecule and you discover a new way of isolating that molecule, if you determine and validate that it's more efficient, more effective than the previous way, then what you've just discovered is not a shortcut. It's the new way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff relies on validation. You know, so when we think about shortcuts, it may not be the same as it was in the past. As long as you're able to validate that it is as good or better than it was in the past, then it becomes the way, and you would be a bit foolish to do it the old, long way. which is why I'm really hoping for that list of shortcuts.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that that sort of takes me to a bit about uh, you know AI, right? If you want yeah, to call it yeah. AI, you know one of the things I think would help the flavor industry, let's imagine we're all together, we're not in separate companies, right? And let's imagine like we put all our data together on formulas and and then some smart person develops the algorithms, which would Mm. not be me, um, to figure out, you know, okay, we want this, sounds boring, strawberry flavor for a protein drink and we want it to be this, that and the other, right? And with all those formulas, it would spit out something we'd never made before because it would take the brains of the industry to do it. And we'd make it, and maybe it would be good, and maybe it wouldn't, but then we tweak it and whatever, and then we could put that data in, back in again. Because people are, like, flavorists are afraid of, of this, because, I you know, of AI, but we, have, we will end up that way. We have to, because mm-hmm. we'll, you know, it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. But then it sort of makes me think about, maybe that pushes us more to be more creative, right? Because we've all, like... A strawberry flavor from um, IFF versus Jif versus versus except Firmnic. Firmix probably loaded it with furanil that goes off. But you know, they're <laughs> they're they're all they're they're all yeah. the same. Ish. So imagine. I get what ish. you mean, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. So yeah, it's like we. It wasn't like that. The in the eighties and nineties, because we were discovering so many things. So mm. think, you know, there was such this big leap of all these great new chemicals and materials being used. So flavors just took off, but now it's like this. "Mm." And imagine what it could be. If we got all that behind us, we stopped making the same old stuff because that could be Mm. done by the AI thing. And it made us give, it gave us time because what we lack Mm. at the moment in all of our roles is time to, to play an experiment. I think we did have more time. um, when I look back compared to what I see now, so much pressure now, right. Um, I think we have more time to be creative and experiment, um, mm-hmm. you know. So, so it's sort of shortcuts could, you know. I kind of liken that to the shortcuts.
0: You reduce administration, which is important. But if yeah. you can automate compliance in some way and automate this administration, then maybe you would have more time to do what only humans can do, and you can only ever do for the first time, you know. So uh, and demonstrate. So have this demonstrable innovation. So you're actually demonstrating how innovative this thing is based on your historical data set. So yeah. what you're saying now is like sometimes the limitation with what people call AI or machine learning is that it, it only is gonna spit out relationships based on what it's fed. So yeah. it, it is fed history and it comes up with a version of the future that is based on history. So something yeah. truly novel is impossible for it to determine. Because it's basing on everything that has, ha- that has come before. And yeah. in a weird way, that's kind of like, that's like a human being that's, that's being uh, trained by multiple people. You kind of become, at least in part, a, a copy of your, your experience, your, your trainers, your mentors, all of those people that have given you different influences in order to, cre- to become who you are now. Mm-hmm. You are, in a way, a copy of all of the things that you've had access to before.
1: And in order to, to become original, um, it's nothing wrong with that, but it just gives you a head start. Like, yeah, instead exactly. of spending all that yeah. time recreating the past, um, yeah. we can start thinking, you know, real true breakthroughs um, in in uh, in in taste, in flavor. Exactly, and like the, it, like it, like the I new, know new it's all very hypo- hypothetical, yeah. but it's. It, I think, you know, it, I'm, I'm intrigued to see that role of AI in our industry, because, you know, it mm. has to take take shape in some way whether it will be an advantage at the beginning probably not but eventually it could be an advantage to creativity
0: so one of the one of the big things that i'm that i'm really looking forward to with with regards to like um kind of thinking about this ideal scenario where we all club together you know and we all uh, add a, add our flavors and our history together in order to create the the super uh, future of, of together together it sounds impossible and it probably is unlikely, but it does build on some interesting principles that are related to web three. You know, so this um, findability, interoperability and uh, kind of decentralized mind, you know, so that people are able to protect their IP and share different bits of information that are based on insight without necessarily losing their right to a market you know, everyone's yeah. super scared yeah. about, let's share yeah. this data, or oh, what, what? does that give away our competitive edge? Yes. And actually there's, there's certain topics like zero knowledge proof that in a way the industry is already working in. You know, so a, a customer comes to you and says, I want a strawberry flavor. We translate that into its chemical composition and deliver back a sensory experience in a particular application. But we're already operating in zero knowledge proof because what we're delivering to them is not the formulation of how to do it. It's kind of like what I always used to get into trouble with in maths exams is not showing my working. So getting the <laughs> answer and the answer yes. was right, but then you lose all of the build-up points because you didn't show your working, you know, because you need to show how you got the answer. Whereas in zero knowledge proof, you're kind of giving them the answer without necessarily showing them how. Yeah. Uh, and in a way that's our business.
1: Yeah. True kind of interesting
0: way of looking at it but it is well i I think you know our our
2: mission to feed nine billion people or 10 i don't i i would again be passionate about that we need some sort of open source collaboration to be able to be able to do that you know for the greater good of humanity um now that could be very naive of me that could be very gene rodenberry of me you know uh, on, on that side of it but it certainly is. I think as food scientists, uh, it is part of our mission to be able to do that. Um, and, but finding the framework to do that in, you know, is, is difficult. And I think, I think Trevor, I've mentioned this before, but you know, what we've seen with COVID research and, and getting that out, I think now that we see the lawsuits coming after the open source, uh, innovation mm-hmm. that might, it might hinder some corporations from actually getting into that, you know, uh, Marie, what would your view on that be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like your sentiment of feeding the world, right? Because that as a young food scientist, because I did chemistry and then food science, as a young food scientist, that's why I did food science, mm. because, you know, I wanted to be part of the solution. And of course, in the that uh, time, I was part of a big problem, actually, with the, the food industry actually causing a lot of. Uh, issues in terms of health and you know people going crazy eating all these terrible things living on them instead of just you know eating occasionally so that was a an issue but now that's been turned on its head i think as you know obviously we became more aware of the health issues and consumers have put a lot of pressure on the food companies who have had to take actions and when we think about um you know, food security, feeding the world. There has to be some collaboration. There has to be some openness if we're going to be successful to do that. We don't really feed the world well now.
3: And no, that's, yeah.
1: that's, you know, and we could,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
1: I, I won't ever forget one of my roles with um, I don't even know if it was IFF or BBA, but I was in Mexico in the countryside and, you know, just driving with a, a sales guy and you know, the, 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 uh, the farmers were in the fields drinking a bottle of a very well-known carbonated beverage.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you could say it's only <laughs> going to be beneficial for people. It wasn't cola by any chance.
1: <laughs> cola, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was their meal
0: yeah.
3: for
1: the day. That was, yeah. you know, and so the, we know that still there are many people who aren't being fed. So when we talk about the future, we need to address now and we're not addressing now.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's hard because how do we get everyone to collaborate in, and how do we get that sharing? You know, the only way you sort of see it, although it's money involved, is how these smaller entrepreneurial companies that are coming up with, you know, like um, Air Protein and things like yeah. that, you know, there's lots of companies investing in them but it's still not open source,
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: but at least it's some type of investment in, you know, some of these things that could solve for us, especially in terms of protein, which is, you know, key nutrient. Um, I don't think it's, it's hard to think we would ever get there enough Mm. that we would solve the, the food problem, but I think we have to try.
0: Yeah, you know, for sure. And I, but to be honest, I feel like in terms of the industry, <clears throat> we're 100% trying now. And as you said, we've turned it on its head in a way because we, we've established that this is now a buying intention, you know, like uh, healthier products, better for you. It's That is the buying intention. And it, it increases people's willingness to spend on certain products. And I also think that there's, there's something to be said for um, vilifying certain... Th- vilifying certain things you know like commodity markets are not inherently bad and no. the the alternative is not inherently good you know so when we think about what is the optimal nutrients it's it's to be honest perfectly individual you know so like uh not everyone has diabetes yeah but some people do have diabetes therefore they need to have a different diet so it's already uh, in intuitively it's it's individual in nature so solving a uh, particular like hunger crisis crises or uh, things um, related to lack of nutrition. It's going to be different depend depending on whose perspectives you're solving for, you know. And I think AI, going back a bit, mm-hmm. has the ability to to perhaps give us the opportunity to start to think about what this interoperable um, platform of openness can be. And, and how it could be leveraged by different people based on their different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so there's so many different things that, I, that I'd like to touch on here, just to get your insight on it. But like one, one thing particular in particular is, it was clear to me once, um, I, I was in a, a meeting also with a vendor, the particular raw material supplier, and they said to me that this isolate, so this, this particular essential oil was actually produced from, I don't know, countless uh, hectares of rose fields, and it just produced this concentrated small little bottle. And I was like, how can that be an advantage? Why is that a positive thing? That's a negative thing. Those rose fields could have been growing food, you know? So when we think about like advances in technology and in how we see things, that, that small bottle of super concentrated something doesn't necessarily make it better. It just makes it different. It's a a concentrated fraction of where it came from. So when you think about those things in terms of its environmental impact of these particular raw materials that we use, it's not related to the 0.1% that ends up in your final product. It's actually related to all of the hectares of growing fields, et cetera, that needed to be kind of, I guess, harvested in order to make these super concentrated flavors. And And I think that that, is not necessarily something that is thought about or necessarily discussed that much as flavorist. You know, when we think about advances in sustainable research and things, we think about uh, let's move to plant-based, awesome, that makes sense. But then protein by protein, we, we're we not thinking about the things in small dosage in these products, even though they may account for a massive carbon footprint or space or, I don't know. I mean, Intrigued to, think, to hear what you think about that with that, those kinds of ideas. All right, so let's take rose,
1: for example. I mean, the thing is that as humans, we like luxury, right? And the rose wasn't made for flavors. The rose was made for fragrance. And we love fragrance and we love luxury and no we don't care about the environment or feeding the world when we're thinking about luxury you know it's kind of intriguing when you think about luxury and that's never going to go away there's always going to be an element of human need for this this luxury but you're entirely right to say like, how many hectares to produce this this tiny little bottle and you know i love the naturals because and i use naturals a lot in my flavor formulas because i find that they are more complex and they just deliver fullness to a flavor and they add that intrigue um you know to a flavor but you know thinking of it the way you've just put it out there I feel terrible now because of course I could have been feeding you know another (laughs) another world with uh, all the naturals I probably used in my career but I mean I use naturals because I think they're interesting and complex and they add something a nuance to it's almost like some complexity to a to a painting but I am very much a proponent of artificial nature identical flavors like mm, that was a that's a big loss if we're talking yeah. about feeding the world
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ridiculous uh, yeah.
1: it's yeah. ridiculous to think that natural ethyl is any different to synthetic ethyl butyrate and even the fda was there you know on uh i think it was mercine or whatever it is mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a number of chemicals that they Say you can't use as artificial, but you can use as natural. How ridiculous is that? Even mm-hmm. even what's supposed to be an intelligent body, mm-hmm. um, a governing body, comes up with something so ridiculous. So I think it's, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see the revival anytime soon of of. Of uh, nature, identical flavors in in the US or Europe, but you you certainly still see yeah. high usage in LATAM and uh, you know and Asia, and you don't see them moving very fast to natural because from an economics perspective, it doesn't make sense, right? And 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 I don't think that flavors got any better because we went to natural. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Yeah,
0: right. and They're so not that's what good. That's, you know exactly. So, and and sometimes yeah. that's what I'm thinking about here is. Mm-hmm. It kind of relates again to this the semantic divide that we were talking about at the beginning, and that, that these are not th- these are false dichotomies, and we're playing on the false dichotomy mm. to to some extent, because saying that uh, this particular essential oil that has been cultivated from hectares and hectares of rose fields to create this thing that doesn't that doesn't immediately mean that it's bad to use that, but using it <laughs> no. in proportion then with other materials means that it retains some of its market and equally can add complexity. There is a tool for it. The naturals are not bad and therefore we shouldn't not use naturals, but mm-hmm. but having them in a hybrid model where your your bulk materials can come from perhaps waste streams of mm. other industries, like that's what we really need yeah. to be thinking about. Especially if we're going to be, we're really promoting this this idea of like a sustainable future, like truly sustainable futures. Mm. Um, and I think that well, it's, we we have to have discussions like this, otherwise they don't happen. You know? yeah, and that that's that's really I think it's cool that that we are talking about it.
2: you know it is the right time to bring that to go back to that now. um you know, talking to the food industry and talking to you know the the people who make these decisions. I recently just been re-educating some people on on not artificial, flag, but these these non natural flavor compounds, and how they how we could how we need to go back. We need to use everything, and stop mm-hmm. just excluding parts of it. I mean, again, you know, in Europe we're facing not a food shortage, but a lot of food inflation because of our policies. We're excluding a lot of material,
0: weirdly synthetically limiting ourselves. We are yes. artificially limiting ourselves based on the rules and regulations that don't necessarily directly correlate with health and well-being no. or, or environmental security. You know, so yes. it's an interesting thing, but you only and from these kinds of things, you, you only learn from your past. You know, when yeah. we talk about like the 60s where there was a, a, a food shortage and uh, they were starting to use the Haber-Bosch method of like isolating or uh, producing nitrogen. Which enabled lots of people to eat, which yeah. which otherwise wouldn't have now we've kind of in a way got to the point now where we be, we kind of make a road for our own for our own backs and the commodity markets of these big crop products actually has started to impede on on biodiversity now all yes. of these kind of problems come as a as a byproduct of that initial solution but as a consequential thing you know so in order to move forward, we just need to account for what happened in the past in order to constantly get like, I guess, a, a more recalibration. More exactly. <laughs> recalibration, a bit, that's yeah. a great word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And do you, do you try and bring that into your to your future feud technologists, Marie?
1: In the sense of recalibration or?
2: Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Well, not excluding everything. Like, you know, yeah. In, to include everything first before it's excluded
1: yes yeah no no for 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 absolute sure we need to be much more open it's very easy especially you know when you look at project briefs to get locked in but it's also our job to be able to help um and only be like you know kind of educate the, the 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 food scientists that we're working with too when it's from a flavorist side um you know it's it's to give alternatives, to look yes. for alternatives. Um, and we should always be seeking for that if we're going to, you know, it, we, as you say, it's not a sh- food shortage now, but who knows, right? Well, what are we going to do then? You know, how, it, it, na- you know, natural, is it better? No. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But we need to talk about that. We're
3: exactly. afraid to talk
1: about that because yes. of all the, you know, when you're in the U S you've got all these NGOs too.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm. like
1: people who know nothing talk about you know health and wellness in a way that it's actually shocking and talk mm-hmm. about food um and th- facts about food that are just untrue i don't know this whole natural flavors as if we're poisoning natural flavors now as if we're poisoning people natural flavors <laughs> what do you know do you know that's kind of
0: <laughs> it's it's strange but it it kind of in a weird way, this is going back again to when we were talking about expertise. Yeah, in yes. order to be an expert at something, you need to spend a certain amount of time in that field. You know, you need to practice. You need to be able to have time at the bar. You need to be able to to um, to refine your craft. Now, when when we're talking about expertise and and who is allowed to comment, sometimes you need to earn the right to make judgment because what we find is that like now with social media et etc everyone's voice counts to a certain extent everyone's voice counts for sure but that's that's not to say that expert voices aren't worth more yeah you know agreed, if i yeah. if i was talking about space travel yeah i may have an opinion but my opinion is mm-hmm. going to be pretty much pointless compared to like an astrophysicist who, who mm-hmm. clearly has more expertise in the, in that particular yeah. Yeah. field um, yeah. and it's it's amazing to think about that but also to frame that for young flavorists coming up into the into the industry it's like question everything think about the future because it's not going to be like the past but you need to learn from the past in order to create a better future yeah so you need to get that expertise
1: yes yeah absolutely and you need to take you know things that you might not agree with or might not think are good then take those and don't you know put them behind you and focus on what you want to build you know sometimes i think with uh um and maybe this is obviously you know my my daughter would tell me oh Mum, you're just so old love um you know it's like a younger folk they want to advance super quickly yeah hmm. they don't want to they don't want to uh, you know i'm probably going to offend people here they don't want to put the work in no. to get there but you have to put the work in and that's very important like you know, a message when, when we are training our flavor, it's like, there is not a shortcut. Mm -hmm. You've got Mm -hmm. to put the work in, you've got to figure out yourself, because only then can you create the next thing, the future, as you, as you put it, you've got to figure it out. You can not just have it handed titles and the rest of titles are cheap, Mm -hmm. right? It's not about that. So that's sort of, you know, I, I think there's an expectation of from the younger generation, Gen, Gen Z, um millennials, that they want it a bit easier.
3: Yeah, um they and
1: do. and I and my message back to them, because I have a lot of them around, because they I was scratching my head when I was first set up the academy, these people didn't want to like they didn't want to stay till seven at night or eight at night figuring it out. <laughs> Want to go at 4 30 and you know, put their put their satchels down and, and get
2: on TikTok, and I for just an hour. you know,
1: get, get on TikTok for an hour, yeah. and But in the end, we got them there, and it was a compromise, right? <laughs> right. I had to change, they have to change. So, my mm-hmm. thinking is, it's very like you got to work like 24/7 and then you're going to be okay. And theirs is, mm, oh, there's got to be a balance, but mm-hmm. but for me, it was about getting them to put the work mm-hmm. in. And, and that's still very important if we are going to do anything. I mean, AI mm. is a shortcut. Yeah. But it's, the idea of AI, though, is to take us to break that next level, mm-hmm. um, which I think is going to be important. Yeah. So it's, perhaps, it's interesting.
0: Perhaps, yeah, And I was thinking, like, perhaps AI gets us halfway up the ladder, but it doesn't get us to the solution, yeah. you know, and. It gets us to to account for what has come before, but it doesn't necessarily move us the next step f- forward. It doesn't. No, take us we have to, to put the, the work
1: in, right?
3: Yeah,
0: and <laughs> also that that point about like putting the work in, uh, like I-, I like the fact that you don't have to. It's it's not like initiation kind of thing, like or I had it hard, so you need to have it hard in order to <laughs> to to do it. That there's other things that you could be uh, learning from or you You kind of, as a trainee, I guess, you should always be aiming not to be as good as your mentor. You should be aiming to 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 surpass that. But in yeah. order to surpass that, you need to know at least what they know. Yeah, and have done at least what they have done. you know, so yeah. to be able to get that level of expertise and experience, uh, because it's your experiences that are that are what you're going to be, I guess getting getting that intuition from. You know, to be able to be skilled later on is only through practice.
1: And don't be afraid to be with people who are better than you, who challenge you. I would much rather be with people who are better than me, who do something, make a better flavor or make her mm-hmm. have a much more brilliant idea than I, I could have. I, I love being with people who are smart and bright and whatever. Don't be afraid of that.
0: Yeah. You know, I know I, it can so make I, you
1: I, feel a bit uncomfortable, but don't be afraid of it.
0: That's the only way you you, you get better. You know, by challenging yourself and failing, fail yes. forwards and yes. fail forwards. Yeah. It, like around other people. Uh, so I just wanted to go back quickly, and this is this is maybe going to be slightly in jest. But you you just mentioned at the beginning when you started Future Flavorists that people were a bit lazy. Do you have a list of people that you'd like to mention now? of uh, your most lazy graduates.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Shall I just ruin their careers forever?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Name and shame. (laughs) Well,
1: you know what? I could give the whole list of all of them because then nobody will want to recruit them, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, way of securing talent. I like
1: that. Yeah. they useless. You don't want them.
0: (laughs) That's very funny. I know I have, there's there's hopefully going to be at least a few mentors that I've had in the past that are listening to me thinking, you love copying and pasting, Trev. Who are you to say the laziest flavorist? Captain, copy and paste. (laughs) The laziest flavorist. Um,
1: The laziest flavorist alive. (laughs) It's a we title. have an award for that. We could have an award for it. <laughs>
3: it's a title. <laughs>
0: no, oh, that's, that's funny. really funny. I like that. What did I What did I say? Do you know, obviously we did this this podcast with, with John and it was amazing. Like it's super funny as well. Mm-hmm. The same as like talking to you. But I, I asked him if he ever considered himself to be a multidisciplinary agent of discovery. MAD for short. And I'm asking you the same question. Would you consider yourself a multidisciplinary agent of discovery? Don't
1: put me. Don't put me in here. John is.
0: It's John different is So
1: exceptional that um, yeah. <laughs> he's a he's a terrible husband, but he's a really good, um, like exceptional genius. He's a genius, frankly. Um, okay, so we're going to I, we're have to cut that
0: part. We're going to have to cut that part. He may listen to this, and we don't want him yeah. to get a big head.
1: Oh, he knows I'll pull him down. uh, (laughs) I think the dreadful husband bit
2: was a bit of a giveaway. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: But Uh, by the um, way, you're probably going to get flowers when this gets published. (laughs) (laughs) I hope. But
1: uh, yeah, in in maybe maybe. I mean, I'm I'm definitely multi-talented.
3: Yeah, Mm. there's lots of things I can't do as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it do, is.
1: It is. Do you think that's is. an like advantage? If, to like a flavorist? like I could never make a flavor a fl- again, I can do something else. I can mm-hmm. create products. I can I don't know. There's so much I could do.
0: But um, do you find do you find that being multidisciplinary or at least in your way of thinking it is a it's like a it's like a definite advantage to a flavorist to be someone that that is interested first of all in learning and and kind of putting the yards in because it's joyous. But but then also the fact that they maybe are interested by tangential things.
1: Absolutely, because it gives you a different perspective and you may look at things differently and having lots of interests or um, being multi-talented, multi-disciplinary whatever you want to call it, it opens different ways of thinking and we need that. And if all you've got, if all you can describe yourself as is a flavorist,
3: that's
1: mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, See, it's, you're not, it's not yeah. going to fly. You, See, you've got to be more than that.
2: I did applied science. And a part of that was we had to do metal work because as a guy said, you have may sometimes you have to make your own apparatus, you know, because you mightn't have the right thing. And do you find like I find with some flavors who haven't worked in a factory that, Maybe they're not as robust at solving some issues as the flavors who've spent a long time in factories uh, scaling up and reactors breaking down halfway through reaction and things like that. Do you, do you find that as well?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to spend time in the factory, and uh, you know, and to, you know, to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about mm-hmm. problem solving there. Like the one who wants to the flavors who might want to stay in the ivory tower, you know keeping their hands clean you're not going to learn very much you learn mm-hmm. a lot from all the issues in the yeah, factory yeah. no not that you you know everybody wants to be a technical flavorist but a certain amount of time getting your hands dirty and being hands-on you know i i think it's it's very easy um you know it for flavorists now they have technicians
3: mm-hmm.
1: they don't even get the hands dirty get that coat on be proud to wear your white coat go to the factory, go watch, you know, what they're doing, talk to people and help solve problems. Don't, you know, whatever level you're ever, you're a chief flavorist or a, you know, principal senior, you know, there's just, it's what we do and it's how we get better if we're learning and challenging ourselves to solve a problem because there's, that's the thing with flavors. There's always a problem.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's always uh, yeah. a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. so problem getting to solve. Do you know, getting onto this, like, kind of, you, I, you mentioned it before as well, and I think it's 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 one of the, the most interesting things I've ever been told in the past, and I think it's worth mentioning again. But do you know, uh, offering offering a customer what they've asked for, you know, they've asked for this sensory characteristic or this flavor, and they've asked for it in a certain delivery method, or they've asked for it in a certain, like, format, um, but then offering them an alternative is so valuable to get them to see their questions in a different perspective too. And it, it does, it has helped me in the past in kind of explaining these things as, um, oh, this this, is, this is a crazy thing of like, I was once listening to the radio and it was kind of like a musing that someone had that said uh, someone came into the, this hardware store and the, the guy that was answering worked at the hardware store. And the person who had just walked in said, uh, do you have a, a five millimeter drill bit? And the, the hardware, the guy that was working there said, ah, I, I know what you've asked for a, a five millimeter drill bit, but you actually are looking for a five millimeter hole. And actually, I've got this other tool that can perform that same function, much faster than the five millimeter drill bit, you should rather buy this. And in a way, that's kind of similar to offering different solutions to an existing problem. If a customer says, we want a natural strawberry flavor um, that has this sensory quality, perhaps offering them something that is super sustainable, that offers the same sensory characteristics might be the right ticket, you know, but people can't make choices if you don't give them the choice.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I'm always about giving them a choice, giving people a choice. And obviously, I think it's important. And listen to the customer. Try to give them what they think they want. And yeah. it's usually what they think they want. But what is what, what could be better? Maybe give them some alternatives that might actually solve what you actually think their problem is as well. And yeah. you can only do that. The key to that is relationship. Mm-hmm. having and building the investing in the relationship with the customer from a technical to technical perspective so you know i i i love sales and i'm i close partner to sales I always say if i'm, I'm having a, a opening my own you know right um flavor company it's going to be flavorous and salespeople initially i can't afford anybody else and that's the key you know that team tag teaming but building that relationship so that your customer, if you do present something, they're going to be open to looking because they they respect you. They have something, they think you have integrity that but you've listened to them and you've given them A. And sometimes you give them A and they go, Oh no, that's not what I wanted. In fact, I want what you mm-hmm, what your mm-hmm. interpretation was. But don't be afraid to do that. Don't inundate with like 20 samples, of course, mm-hmm. because nobody wants to see that. Like if I go into any presentation and there's hundreds of samples I'm like Mm-mm, no nobody wants that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so you know that shows you haven't really listened and and kind of distilled the information but yeah sometimes people don't know what they want until they see it as well until they taste mm-hmm. it Um, they haven't considered it
3: mm-hmm. so yeah, and
1: I think it's yeah. a very important thing a lesson to do don't just give them said. You, you know what they've asked for necessarily
0: <laughs> so it reminds me of of this idea i could, i'm going to say it fancy first so initially it's called the paradox of choice and how too too much choice can can be negative you know so giving someone too much choice means that it's impossible to choose like a, we all have been there before in a, a restaurant and you have a menu that's got so many different things that you i hate are big menus in. i'm like you, you i don't want to
1: see it yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's similar to
0: what i said to Sean when we first jumped on and i was like so how is your How was your day? And can you rate it on an on a whole integer scale of one to three? One being the worst day you've ever had, and three being the absolute best. And I bet I can guess what it is. It's always going to be a two. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. You're waiting for that best day. You're waiting
1: for that best day. And you can only ever know
0: in
3: hindsight.
0: You can only ever know in hindsight. You know, as good as it can, as good as good as it is right now, it could always be worse. yes So you can only know if it was truly the best day ever in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> so we're resisting the paradox of choice. Yeah. Mm. Super funny. And
1: choice choice can be hard. That's for sure. So oh, also overwhelm. just
0: to add to add more maybe some uh, stupid humor to this as as uh, we often do. You you basically, and I'm not saying that this is actually your suggestion, because I think uh, ADM would probably uh, take offense to this. But if you ever did open up your own flavor house and call it Right Flavors, um, I might immediately open the competitor that called Wrong Flavors.
1: Mm, funny, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well,
3: yeah, it's his own world. Yeah. Oh, it's own good world. to be with
1: some. Terrible English
2: humor. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: get out of the habit when you're here. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
3: nice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, culture is, you know, when you're building flavor and you're, again, doing presentations, culture is part of how they taste, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know, and even the language, because when you're presenting to an American customer, it's completely different. I Mm -hmm. I remember once presenting to, say, a Scandinavian customer, and you know you ask for feet but they're in a corner talking to each other and you go well did you like it or not and they just go yeah no you know so it is so that language of culture and, and how that expresses itself and taste is can be very upsetting or very very rewarding depending on what part of the world you're in mm-hmm.
1: yeah no it, no it can it's it, you know it's hard also if you're Some, I would say, in the U.S., they they, can—they won't necessarily all tell you what they really think. They'll say it's great, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't great. So that's about relationship again. That's why it's so important to build that trust and relationship with your customers. They can tell you it sucked, and it Mm -hmm. wasn't what what they were looking for. And you know, I mean, as a as a as a flavorist, you gotta kind of you gotta be able to laugh at yourself. You can't take it yourself too seriously so when a customer hates what was your masterpiece you gotta kind of just roll over put your balls in the air laugh and you know pick yourself up and listen and, and go in again but uh yeah different cultures like in Asia it's very different too Japan mm. um oh my gosh you know it's a whole different experience in mm. Japan it's very analytical as well um you know every every uh, i dotted every t crossed and you know we have to be so buttoned up it's a very just mm-hmm. a very different way of working and so so slow um and then but you i know, also n- think
0: so, some sometimes in in different cultures as well people are like uh they have a different affinity to like um experimentation or like exploration you know so like show me something weird and our idea of weird is not necessarily as weird as other people could do so you know like different products in japan are like unbelievably strange in in the the uk or in the us uh, with uh, different uh, flavors of uh, uh, what what's it pringles or like different crisps and things like that in incredibly diverse range of flavors but i feel like that means that there must be a customer base that is kind of intrigued by this this sens- sensory exploration
1: They're very innovative,
0: yeah,
1: right? But many of those products don't last very long, Mm -hmm. right? That's one of the, you know, as a food company, it's hard because Mm -hmm. you've got to, you're constantly doing these LTOs really. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are, I mean, when you look at the innovation, it's pretty incredible and they are very open. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look at the food, their food is amazing.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
1: incredibly innovative. And when you really, true japanese food is such a comp uh, a mix of complex flavors and things you wouldn't imagine going together but you're right it's like but we we wouldn't be able to market a lot of the products mm. in europe or the us right because we're a little bit more straight
2: mm-hmm. but they also, yeah yeah they also have very complex cooking methods as well mm. you know mm. which translate to great food and i think also with that part of it, they also see and I get back to art they see color differently and they describe color differently in different parts or like in,
3: mm.
2: in Japan, black and white is a color.
1: I didn't know that.
2: You Well, you, when people brought out color TV, yeah. they said, well, we already have color TV, we have black and white. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and to them that was a color. So uh, they have another color now. Um, yeah. So, you know, when you, so they express themselves differently in art as well as they do in, in cooking. Yeah. I have to say for me,
1: they have their, precision of the germans and the elegance of the french
3: Mm.
1: their food is incredible but everything is just so beautifully precise Mm.
0: Um, okay well guys guys okay so the the japanese culture is obviously getting all of the awards uh, it's getting the awards right now (laughs) we're not we're not neglecting any of the other listeners and we understand that you each have benefit um and we each play our own game I think you know, it's because
1: I'm hungry. It's you know, it's <laughs> twelve thirty nine PM, and I'm thinking about food.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a perfect pod- podcast for that. But you're also thinking about Japanese food, so I hope someone's yeah. able to. Um, supply I don't the think demand. that's what I'm
1: having for lunch. <laughs> Probably a bagel. <laughs>
0: also, could be good though.
1: Could be mm. good. Oh yeah. Smear me, New Jersey, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Often people ask, "How do I become a flavorist?" I have this kind of background and I'm thinking this sounds like the dream. This sounds like the coolest idea, coolest opportunity ever. And oftentimes people find it very difficult to crack into this particular job. You know, how do they get into the industry? How do they become a flavorist? What kind of characteristics do you look look for in a person that's going to make you go, wow, th- this is someone different, but can color in the lines, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um- I don't really look for that sensory capability because I honestly I didn't think I know I was not genetically the most amazing taster and smeller and I learned how to do that and actually because I had to teach myself I think I'm better than some of the ones that were more natural at it like John Wright don't know if you've ever spoken <laughs> to him um, but when, so it's the sensory piece I, I believe unless they're devoid, of course, of any ability to taste and mm-hmm. smell, that's mm-hmm. a whole different thing, um, isn't so important. What I look for is what I call grit.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because you need, you need grit if you're going to be successful as a flavorist. Because um, I think, Sean, you mentioned it like the first, you know, two years. Well, after two years, they want to get to the end. I want people who want to get to the end. I want people who are going to enjoy every moment of their learning and they show grit when they fail that they pick themselves up. So the way that, that the ideal way, we don't always follow this, but the ideal way is we bring in graduates, young people who are assistants to flavorists and or they may be in product development or whatever, and we're kind of watching them to see, You know, we, we, we invite to apply to, you know, it's an invitation only and there's no, when we interview people to come in as a creative assistant, there's no promise, never (laughs) a promise. Right. And, you know, we really look at their work ethic, the way they work, whether they're going to have grit, they, they need, they don't always have to have a flamboyant personality. They can be quiet, (laughs) but as, but as long as they're able to communicate well, you know, even being quiet that they can communicate, you know, we put them through the usual testing, but one of the the key things that we do is we tell them to choose anything. must be anything to do with the food industry and flavor and all of that. Something they're passionate about, you know, to talk about it. And you can see, do they have passion in those, you know, 10, 15 minute presentations and passion, um, is, is, is really to me key, being passionate about what you do and, and being able to have fun uh, at what you're doing. So you, you just kind of see whether, you know, it's always a risk. You don't know if people are going to make it, but, you know, I would say we haven't had anybody fall out or fail from, uh, from our program, um, you know, and, and, and all those elements really grit and passion are the things that that i think are most important everything else you can teach them yeah, you can't teach yeah. passion
2: no that's, not really that's fascinating yeah you know yeah. it's uh yeah i like the idea yeah, you get them to talk about something else non-related um yeah actually a lot of a lot of yeah we we do the kind of 60 second videos for people to introduce themselves when they come on board and yeah you can you can see the ones who are passionate about some hobbies um, yeah, yeah 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 we have a lot of about musicians living in life right about yeah.
1: living and living it's about if you're not passionate about things mm, you know but you're not going to make it
2: no no um and then because uh, actually you know again going back to one of the things you said at the start with the academy uh like I brought my kids to uh a Chris Hatfield talk who's the Canadian astronaut and he said Ooh. and he said you know and at the end people are asking you know how do you become an astronaut or you know you know what you do when you put the crew together and he goes well if you're in a space station for six months and everybody's an astrophysicist it's going to be a very boring place and just what you just said there now like you you hire for for you hire people that are different together so you have great performing teams but you don't want everybody to be the astrophysicist you know it's great to have that variety and and Obviously, when when things are going down, you need that optimist to say tomorrow will be better, you know. Yes. Or like Trevor's saying, like your day, your your day two was actually a day three, you know, it was was (laughs) was the best day ever. You just didn't realize it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I, I like the point of diversity, you know, because diversity is an interesting one because we gravitate towards similar types of people with similar types of thinking automatically. It takes a, a big effort to make your network diverse. And it yeah. takes an effort to bring in diversity into your teams as well. But you have yeah, to do and, it because the benefits are tremendous. Yeah.
2: And people mm-hmm. say, oh, you're a member of the British Society of Flavorists. And you go, yep, yeah, but you're not British and you're not a flavorist. I go, yep, that's <laughs> correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. You know, and, and we actually have a very diverse base now, you know, so it, it helps us be, be, be different as well
0: it's good for argumentation though as well like Mm. you have to be thinking about everything of like um be it you know to to develop that kind of tougher skin but also realize that people are not arguing because they have a personal vendetta or a grudge or something like that Mm. often the argumentation is about understanding so i i always think about this in ways that uh if someone once told me if you give a presentation and, you're, and you maybe prepared very well for it and you thought the content was amazing and you delivered it really well, but the, the audience doesn't take away your message, that's not their fault, that's your fault. You know? So uh, being able to, to take criticism from people, but also being able to communicate properly with people, is, it's kind of like a, it's a group act. You know? Everything is a, um, corroboration and collaboration. And you, you learn more from people who are different from you, than from people who are the same, because coming up with new and different ideas is is kind of like this. It's group work, you know. Mm-hmm. But you need to have this, I guess, an an air of maybe confidence in the fact that the other people are not doing it negatively directed at you, you know, To to your personal, you need you need to be able to take criticism and yeah. learn from yeah. criticism. Yeah, it's yeah. not
1: their fault. Yeah, <laughs> if you haven't connected. Exactly. You know, because you know, I mean, I've, we've all been there, probably. I've done some of, you know, I've done presentations where I thought I, my content was amazing and I have not connected with the audience. And then there have been other times that, you know, haven't put so much effort in, let's say, but I've connected well with the audience. It really depended on topic and to your point, how you communicate with, with people. And you have to, if you're not connecting, you need to accept that it's not their fault, it's your mm-hmm. fault change yeah. your ways of communication um but i like that 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 way of thinking i think uh, that's a a good a good way of discussing because you hear people say our oh, customer didn't like it. it's you know their fault kind of what thing. do they, they know? don't know what yeah. they want what do they know you know customers
0: eh, you know like at the end of the day know. they're the ones buying it yeah yes <laughs> and, and that's something that that's interesting about being a flavorist as well and someone else told me this before unfortunately i listened is that You're not making flavors for you. You know, if I was making flavors for me or for other flavorists, my market is pretty small. So I'm making flavors for the people who are going to experience them. So I need to make sure that they are pleasant or at least amazing for the majority of my market. So we want to make sure that they're safe for as many people as possible. They don't contain allergens, that they're easy to ship. They're not a drain on uh, sustainable sources of things and all, all of that but but you're tr- always trying to maximize your market and you are not the market you need to be discerning at creating these things but it's about how you connect with the people who buy them not with what you think you could create the most incredible salmon flavor and hate salmon yourself
1: yeah. i think when you hate something you make it better you know That's i think really. the things that yeah, because I think you hone in on those mm-hmm. nuances a little. I don't know. It's something about things that you don't like that um, you make better flavors.
0: It's a weird thing, know, isn't it? Maybe it's just yeah. me. but I, I, no, no. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And sometimes it, it gets you to, to that the, the focal point of understanding what the sensory contribution of certain materials are to someone else makes you um, realize what their value is you know so what what is their significance to it to an entire flavor it's about like kind of experiencing through someone else's experience how those things play together in this kind of orchestra yeah Uh, so yeah it's it's amazing and it's a it's a great I think I've I've been fortunate in learning from some very great flavorists at being able to sell their great ideas that they think are Pretty good and meet the meet the customers' demands, but being able to sell that to a customer. And I wonder what you what you think about like having this kind of selling or sales personality and how that could be helpful to a flavorist, whether you're selling it internally or externally. How having the ability to communicate, as you said, kind of gives you, um, I guess, an advantage.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I I've, I've seen very different styles. Of um, how successful, commercially successful flavorists succeed, and some of them could be, some of them could be like myself. I'm a bit flamboyant, uh, chatty, make that relationship, you know, really get into. I mean, you know, my kind of ammo as a when I was a bench flavorist was ending up in their lab, so I became part of their team. Yeah. You know, so they didn't even notice I was there, kind of thing. That yeah. would be my ammo. But then you Know there are other flavors. There was one guy who had a great impact on me, his name was Dick Packham. He mm-hmm. was a BBA guy. He's unfortunately passed away. Um and customers loved him, loved everything he made and loved him. He was not this salesy type, but he was a connector. Mm-hmm. And he just had that ability to connect, then they enjoyed him and they trusted him because he wasn't flamboyant. They wouldn't have trusted me, the same customer base wouldn't have mm-hmm. trusted me because i'm a bit too much and he wasn't he was so i think depends on the customer and and there are different styles but we're all we've all got to sell it in. if you're a flavorist and you're not you're not selling it in you probably don't belong in the commercial world you probably mm-hmm. belong in the science and technology you know in in the back yeah. uh, mm-hmm. doing the the longer longer term stuff maybe because i think we all have to have that element of you know, business savvy. It's about business acumen, right?
2: Yeah. That
1: yeah. uh, You know, you've got to have a, an element of that. At the end of the day, we need to sell the flavors so our companies thrive
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you want your customers to be happy. They, you, you don't just want to sell it. You want it to be successful, the mm-hmm. product to actually launch and stay launched.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Um. So th- there's, mm. you know, that's very much part of what we do. It isn't, you know, just about making the flavor. It is yeah. about the you know, the cell and until that first order becomes a second order, I never never yeah. count them as a, a win until that that really truly happens.
2: Well, I'm, a, but I'm we've all say got as different I, styles. I'm in say as I would count it as a win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's 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 funny when you when you talk about BBA, you know, I, I used to formulate with BBA with the Saramaxes Oh my gosh! And I can still, I can still, well, it comes out, I can still remember the taste of the onion ceramics.
1: Oh my gosh. I can remember the smell of it too. The (laughs) smell of it too. Yeah, exactly.
2: So, you know, you kind of, when you have, you know, Mm. do you think those type of products are still around? Like, do you think the next generation will say, oh, flavor X from company X to me was always my go-to, you know, do you like, do you think?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting one because there was so much of that. Mm-hmm. In the earlier days but you know Jivadin owned the strawberry flavors. Yeah, yeah. Master taste. You know, and, yeah. uh, taste, you know and, PFW owns yep. the and master taste, they own the, yeah. the, the the savory meat flavors. Yeah. They yeah. you still taste the same when you taste anybody's meat flavor now, you still taste that PFW tastemaker note in it. I don't know if that happens now. It's mm. an interesting an interesting yeah, a, thought? Not sure
0: yeah it's weird it's weird how those things kind of happen, um, and how i, I sometimes I, I find that there is in in our landscape we're always looking to to make sure that we're doing as well as uh, competitors, you know mm-hmm. in which case we we're looking, I guess as different companies within this kind of ecosystem are looking to to make sure we have a version of someone else's top selling thing, yeah. you know, so like yeah. you have a version of this or a version of that. And I wonder if that is actually profitable versus not competing and having a monopoly on your own thing, on yeah. your exact same something else that you don't have to be, you could never, ever be compared against someone else because you have a range of something that no one else has. Yeah. And I, I guess yeah. it, you have to hybridize it a bit and have a bit of both of those, don't you?
1: I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're all striving to do, aren't we? Have a point of differentiation. You yep. know, if if you if you think about companies now, and if they go and do, and um, from a customer end, all these companies come in with their flavor capability presentations. It's like they're all the same. <laughs> yeah, so we exactly. <laughs> we're kind of, we're got, kind of going we got to, to find that differentiating yeah. point. And mm-hmm. do we 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 do, we shouldn't want to be the same?
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah,
2: but we're kind of going back to that point where if we're only concentrating on naturals, we're reducing the palette that we're We're formulating from, you know, back in the other, not not the old
3: days. (laughs)
2: Back in the day, you had a completely different palette to use, and like I was walking around one of our flavor factories uh, a few weeks ago, and actually in Manchester, I, know and it's, you know, it's still great to see some small flavor houses making some unique raw materials. Mm -hmm. I don't think Mm -hmm. there's probably as much as that as there used to be back in the day. Um, And I think that's probably one of my kind of, you know, when I see, you know, consolidation in the industry, probably we're losing some really good flavor keys or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that obviously we didn't, we just let die out because they're not commercial.
0: Yeah. 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 Or, or they're not commoditized in a way that we can get the the, the benefits of, of uh, scale. You know, yeah. So like uh, so th- I have particular views on this and uh, this this whole idea about like consolidation and how uh, especially customers of flavor houses, how they like to consolidate their massive banks of like fifteen hundred different strawberries. And why do we mm-hmm. have all of those? Why can't we just get uh 15 you know instead of like 400 yeah you know. well you can
1: and, but you know yeah, that, down but your limits you. <laughs> it limits you exactly
0: and and sometimes i think the benefits of consolidation are um sold as being um you know like quantity you can buy more of more of a few therefore you can get a better price per kilo because you're buying loads so it's like these the normal cost benefits that you would get but is it also to do with control you know each of each of us has like a normal entrance criteria of like how something comes into the business and you have this particular sku and therefore your raw materials means that the the more the, the bigger your palette the more managed management it needs it requires yes. a lot more in order to control it and make sure it's up to date and to make sure everything's in stock and in date and all of that kind of stuff but perhaps this is a way that AI could help as well in yeah. automating some of that kind of stock control process, but also giving customers of flavor houses, the ability to, I guess, uh, automatically screen the flavors that they have. Right? Well, this is like a one idea, but maybe that it, you reduce the benefits of consolidation by creating intuitive tools, I guess, maybe.
1: Maybe, there's a lot there to unpack. I should
0: have have maybe (laughs) fleshed that out a bit more. Uh, Guys, I'll do a Pracy and give it back to you in bullet points, it's probably better. Okay, let's do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it is the whole consolidation of the industry and the consolidation of companies trying to consolidate their portfolios, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, only wanting to deal with Two flavor houses or three flavor houses, yeah. and um, you know it's it 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 is about the commoditization then mm-hmm. of our product, and so it turns into a commodity. So anything that was ever special about it, you know, the the, the flavor company is trying to make money out of it. The customer is trying to pay as least least as possible. You know that flavor is probably not what it started as, um, you know, yeah. in its lifetime. The formula itself has been dumbed down as well. And, you know, I, I, I think, well, I think it's, it's interesting because when you look at the companies that have come up with new brands, new things, it's not the CPG companies. hmm it comes like it comes from the mid tier and the small entrepreneurs. Everything that's new and and becoming iconic as has not come from these CPGs because they can't because they're commoditized everything. So I don't know that AI can help them
3: it, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> to be honest, because they're not going to get out of that. Uh, yeah, it could AI could look at their portfolio and whittle it down and optimize the 1500 optimize it whatever you could do that um but i don't think that gives them a a competitive advantage with the consumer mm -hmm. i mean all new products that are doing well aren't from the cpgs the cpgs are buying the companies
3: Mm -hmm. yeah Mm
2: -hmm. so if we become the creators of curiosity and we have this little cabinet really what kind of Essential raw materials or essential tastes? Would you put into that cabinet? In
1: the actual raw materials themselves, or or, or taste know, or
2: flavor? what what would you protect?
0: From, what would I
1: protect?
0: Yeah, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I would add metallic into there. I'd probably metallic, add yeah. water. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> And also that weird taste you get when you lick a battery. It's intriguing and I'd like to keep it in.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think what's, what we're protecting is integrity of formulas. Right. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, this 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 cost exercise that dumbs our our formulas down because we're having to, you know, I know especially with natural the lactones, yeah. for example, right? I mean, I don't think you can optimize based on the cost of lactone, say cheese, milk, whatever flavor, because you're stuck with the, the pricing.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. Right. So that's that's the the issue that, that that there's this whole, yes, they want natural flavors, but they don't really want to pay the price of natural flavors. They want, mm-hmm. you know, and that dumbs that dumbs the integrity of our formula. So I mean, I think I know myself, you know, when I'm making a formula, I've got my eye on the price and the cost in use and the whatever. I'm not making my most optimum, best tasting formula necessarily. And you could argue and say, well, you know what, Marie, there's a skill in making something that doesn't cost very much and tastes amazing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, there is. Of of course
0: there is. But you're you're sometimes you're, you're stuck, I guess, then with like um physical limitations you know that one of the limitations is obviously like cost per kilo so your cost of mm-hmm. raw materials and things like that and that's mm-hmm. a limitation but if you're stuck within that limitation there's obviously like uh innovation that can happen within these these n- new constraints but there's only so far you can push that like at the end of the day in order to make something taste or smell the way that it needs to you need to put the things in in order for them to come out so yeah. Yeah. it's it's like it's like looking at an artwork and saying well they've actually uh, done that at microscopic scales which means that when i walk back 10 paces, it looks like a photo yeah. well that's there's a completely different experience to something like a, a stick drawing that they've used three colors you know yes. they they're completely different things they're completely different yeah yeah and you, you can't kind of assess them the same way it actually reminds me of a of a quote that i've i think i've brought up before but uh it's it's kind of in in argument to this. So do you know that that Exubery, Antoine uh, de Saint-Exubery quote of uh, that says, perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. away. But I feel like (laughs) when there is nothing left to take away kind of moves us away from, well, actually those things that you took away did have an impact and now they aren't having the impact. Therefore we all are left with beige.
3: Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I don't actually like his quote. Yeah, um, <laughs> sorry.
3: <laughs> doesn't apply no, that's to flavors. Thing. It doesn't apply. things.
0: But that's not to say don't make flavors um, unnecessarily complex. You know, that's a, that's everything needs thing. to have significance. Yeah. And I maybe should yeah. have started with that, yeah.
1: Yeah, because well, we, because because that's yeah. the that's the thing, isn't it? I've seen this. is like when I'm teaching elegant flavors to uh the teams i'm like everything needs to be in there for a reason don't put mm-hmm. put something in and, and like it's so bad and then throw something on top but that that something that you put in was that wasn't fitting because i can tell you it's at the end of the day it's, it's going to come a cropper whether it's mm-hmm. on you know once you it, you know it's it's going to distort your flavor at a certain dosage mm-hmm. that you didn't bother to take it out all that kind of lazy thing when people take this flavor and that flavor and oh the other flavor God, yeah. and blend it together and create a nightmare, um, and then you pro- you actually create a production nightmare. Mm-hmm. You can never replicate it. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's a mess. So you you know not the flavors shouldn't be complex, mm-hmm. but the complexity is about the you know the, the photograph the the the, yeah. the the little yeah. detail the experience that's what you're trying to do and you. know i've seen some of the best flavors made with the fewest materials
3: Mm, just
1: clever flavors that really you know are kind of just beautiful to taste i think the material that
0: uh sorry so no i really liked what you said before about like elegance you know you're creating with elegance and you can have elegance with complexity so that then again not mutually exclusive you can it's about creating elegance in as efficient a way as possible you know so yeah. or creating complexity in a, in as efficient a way as possible which is i think that's really cool yeah
1: yeah yeah it's a good way to think of it um you know sometimes i, I laugh with the savory flavorists because you know they tell me uh, there's one savory flavor, i'll say his name because he won't mind ken kraut and he always mm-hmm. says you know, he's from Union Beach in New Jersey, you know? It's not a cherry flavor, bro, when we're complaining <laughs> about his complexity. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> You know, and and that's more about complexity of formula than it is complexity of taste. And I, I mm-hmm. you know, I do think savory is is more complex in in that that sense that there's it's much more layered um and it takes a an art to really make a, a to make it all hang together and not to be a bit weird. Mm-hmm. Um I love making savory flavors. They're the most challenging um by far.
0: And and what do you consider those say like reaction flavors?
1: Would, oh no, no you... that's part of the story, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the top notes and the and the reaction flavors, the whole, mm. you know, imami, salty, all this yeah. Yeah. thrown in together to create this amazing product. I think it's I think it's uh, in, intriguing, and top notes are, are, are fun to make when they're savory. They are hard because of the the intensity.
0: Yeah, um, and, balancing. You know, that yeah. Makes it,
1: and balancing. Yeah, and balancing. Yeah, no, uh, for sure.
0: Especially when I guess you're you're constantly dealing with things like uh, your your own threshold experiences, and like in the environment that you're compounding or creating these savory flavors in they're so strong super super strong so the raw materials that you're using are so strong in and of themselves that how can you balance how can you balance in that environment and it come out when I was working in savory as well I found that it was very very difficult for me to be able to um, compound something one day and taste it that same day and for my evaluation notes to be accurate I came in the next day tasted it tasted like a completely different thing yeah. and I was like out of kilter with everything. <laughs> and I think that's one of the, the most intriguing things is that you can reach a threshold or like like over threshold on certain things where you you've become impaired at at seeing that nuance at seeing the nuance between all of these different materials in your flavor um, because you've kind of I guess been at it too long.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that happens with um not just with savory flavors with other flavors especially when you're matching you know Mm -hmm. we've all been there like the end of the day oh my god I've done it this is amazing
3: done (laughs)
0: yeah
1: and then the next day you know goes into the application or you taste it or whatever or you smell it, like what was I thinking like it's so wrong completely up (laughs) completely up like yeah it it kind of
0: makes you think like what this doesn't make any sense at all
1: no no and i'm like oh my god i hope people don't know i'm a fake really
0: (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. it's amazing i think it's it's quite savory
1: you're right i mean i think you have to the other side of savory is you need to let it sit
3: Mm -hmm. mature
1: um you know i think that's an important part like they change dramatically it takes a while for that equilibrium to to actually be what the smell or taste is going to be with the savory flavor longer than the other than a fruit or sweet flavor.
3: And
0: is that because of the applications?
1: I think it's all the sulfurous notes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you're you're
1: be- using, if you think about it, you're using a lot more different sulfurous foods. notes generally, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, you could arguably say the same for coffee, coffee changes. Yeah, right? yeah,
0: yeah, or tropical yeah. fruit kind of things or as tropical well, fruit, especially like in-
1: if you smell them on the day, smell on mm-hmm. the day next, it, it, it tends to be better.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So when we think, oh, like, yeah. so, you know, flavor, flavor delivery and, like, migration and things like that, those kind of phenomena are, like, really acutely um, experienced by flavorists, but not necessarily by really anyone else. You know, when we when we talk about, like, a flavor bedding in or a, or a flavor, like, sitting to, like, uh, acclimatize in a thing, it will get to some kind of level of equilibrium. Everything's always in flux. You know, so that's the reason food goes old. And it's the reason like four-year-old, um, what's a jammy dodgers, don't taste the same as two-year-old jammy dodgers. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> and if they do, there's something weird going on. But but to a yeah. certain extent, those kind of advances in food science have enabled us to waste less to a certain extent. You know, these preservation methods and uh, thinking about how, how to... Uh, adjust compensation factors based on a particular process or a procedure to produce an end application you know this end product um and i i wonder how much better um things have got these days than they've than they were before you know like understanding compensation factors um when when applying certain flavors to a certain application like do you have any kind of insights into like what is what is a difficult application to to flavor for and why
1: yeah i mean i i, I think the products that we're flavoring are a bit different now than you know, i mean we obviously we're still doing some of the the mainstay beverages and stuff like that but when you're dealing with protein we all mm-hmm. know how much harder that is to to flavor and it might taste great day one um you know you make those for example but the most of the burgers that if they sit for an hour, they taste terrible, um, you know, the plant-based burgers because of that protein binding and, you know, just, it, it's just not, they're just not good. So they're challenging. There are new challenges by some of the new products, um, sports nutrition, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, That that for sure, we have to design and figure out how to design our flavors. Because at the end of the day, you know, food science is, uh, has played a great role in in enabling us to have products that have a great shelf life, etc. Mm-hmm. But we have to figure out how. You know, I'm I'm sure absolutely none of them taste the same after a year. I know we've got year shelf life coming out of our ears, but um, you know, but they still got to taste good. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's yeah. that's and some of the challenges I think we we're seeing with the um, this sort of blurring of the lines between dietary supplements and, and functional food and beverages, right? We're seeing that, and that, that poses a lot of challenges from a flavoring perspective in terms of all those ingredients and how they interact, all those active ingredients, health and wellness ingredients, and how they react with flavor and taste and how to make it taste good for a prolonged period of time. Because mm. I, I, from my experience, there are more changes once you start using different proteins, different botanicals, um, you know, the the things start to get very complicated. Um, Doesn't mean that you can't make stuff that tastes good. It's just, you have a better understanding of those interactions and how that complexity changes over time. Um, But thinking about, you know, sort of a a, there's this kind of purist view of we want to take everything out right we don't want to have preservatives we want we want you know what's wrong with you why are you putting all this stuff in and um I did a little fun tiktok on pink sauce um but that kind of emerged from this pink sauce tiktok craze right and um this pink sauce was created by somebody kind of a chef not really Mm -hmm. and it took off And then they started selling it and then it was arriving on the doorsteps of people exploding and whatever. If that wasn't ever an example of why we have food science and why we have, (laughs) why we, why, why there's a need for food safety, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, that to me was like a, such a great example for all these young people seeing this, you know, TikTok sauce and um, you know, this thing had been made from dragon fruit, this and whatever, nothing, not heat treated, nothing. And (laughs) Yeah, you know, So it's, 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 can you imagine that turning up on your doorstep? And uh, now, now I think uh, they have a company making it, you know, probably it's dumbed down from what it was, but I think-
0: Or, or they safe.
1: Safety, that's, that's the thing that, that, that people need to recognize. It's like, mm-hmm. it is about food safety mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And yeah. you can't have everything just made fresh there and then um we couldn't feed everybody that way and we couldn't afford to and people can't afford it anyway Mm
3: -hmm. yeah
1: so um you know i think i think it's interesting and i think obviously there's a lot of pressure you know i know we're doing a lot of research around natural antioxidants natural Mm -hmm. this natural preservatives etc and and that's all well and good if as long as we're looking at you, you said it earlier waste streams and things like that yeah Uh, Yeah. And and also need it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this idea about like natural antioxidants and natural preservatives and natural this and natural that. At the end of the day, we have a finite planet and every single thing we've ever seen or touched or heard or whatever has come from this planet. So everything we've got, this idea about what natural is or even what I love to think about sometimes is, uh, well, I say love to. It's kind of annoying, but uh, what is organic? It depends who you ask. If you asked an organic chemist, the chemist, they would say, well, that probably contains carbon, but it's not what is organic to you, you know? So yeah. when you think about all of these different kind of semantic terms, um, it changes what you think about them. And sometimes understanding a bit more is not bad. That's It's always better. But sometimes a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing where you think you understand, but really you don't. But you
1: don't.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I always think there's a there's a shop here called Whole Foods. I don't know. I mean, they do have it in yeah. the UK, right? Whole Foods. And people think everything in there is organic. Yeah. It's not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but even if it was, even if it was, there's like, what does organic really mean is different to what maybe people assume it means, you know, so actually understanding better. what
1: those they mean, they think it means better.
0: Well, that's right. the, exactly what they think about, I guess, natural. And the weird thing is, is you can have a natural chocolate flavor, but I've never seen chocolate growing on trees. You haven't.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> have I you have. never seen the famous chocolate tree?
0: <laughs> or or a, a natural cola tree. You can have cola nuts, but they definitely taste a bit different to cola. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah, No, it's, it's sunny, certainly challenging. But you're right. I think the 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 idea of we have finite resource,
0: mm.
1: and so some of these, these things almost seem silly, pretentious.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what what's the what do you what do you aim to gain from it? That's what I'm. Mm-hmm. That's what I try and sometimes get at in terms of legislation. Is I think we need to think about what the consequence the consequences of our legislative framework is before doing it. Before just saying yes. well, that's it. It's off the list, that's it, yeah. this is on the list. Because when, when you're thinking about commodity markets, we need to think about what the replacements are instead of just cutting something out because the replacement might be worse than what the problems you're dealing with right now. So thinking about the consequences and thinking about things consequentially, I think is important everywhere. And the more we're able to mitigate unknown consequences that are perhaps negative, the better. It's my Truth. philosophical stance for today um, <laughs> it means that I can go to bed happy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's true. You have to know that you have to understand what the, the, the solution could be worse than the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and that's something, you know, let's it's dumb it down to flavors and making flavors. Yeah. You know, sometimes we solve a problem, we create a new problem mm-hmm. and, and, and it's that sometimes you don't see the stretch in thinking right pushing people to stretch and think have you really solved it or have you just created a a nightmare for the next production batch or whatever it is Um, yeah
0: it's something that I think about sometimes is that we we are inherently not built to account for mistakes as much as we maybe should so when you're designing flavors and you're thinking about them in like uh what what is the you know, the flavor engineering part of it, when you come up with a a wonderful taste and you come up with an incredibly um, elegant but complex flavor formulation. And then when you think about the next step, which is how do do they produce this at a scaled up uh, level in the factory? You need to really think about what the consequences of each of the decisions you make are, because otherwise it's gonna be, first of all, impossible to replicate. And if you send a a sample out from your lab that hasn't had a, a scale of trial to a customer and they like it uh let's say you weighed something out slightly wrong or incorrectly and then you try and reproduce it in the factory and, and we can't that's that's kind of the fault of the flavorist, not the fault of the factory you know you, you, you yeah, didn't yeah, create yeah. something that is reproducible and yeah that the cost of that mistake could be far worse than having never sent the sample to the customer in the first place
2: yeah Especially all, if the cost a 10-ton
0: <laughs> order first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you're like, oh, we don't actually have a 10-ton vat for that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's important. I mean, Sean, you talked about it, the production part mm. of you know, learning. Um, it's important that that time is spent. And I don't mean just um go there for a week or a day or an hour, that time is spent during those training years, you know, to to really yeah. understand that you know your little formula in a little beaker (laughs) it can have a lot of issues when you when you scale it up just different solubilities that might work in 100 mils Mm -hmm. that don't work in you know anything bigger and that's and unfortunately we can't scale up everything we make while we're doing it so that's the important thing of building that knowledge Mm -hmm. to you know but you know still sometimes things happen even to uh, you know the the flavorists who's had 20 years experience and something gets scaled up and it's wrong but they have they you know they have to get themselves in into operations don't expect production just to figure it out get in there get your yeah. hands dirty
0: you and know. also they don't know why you put something in you know yeah. when the, when someone in operation you take season, it out yeah, exactly can't you take it out yeah. and then they go we took it out and it doesn't taste different and i'm like come on it does taste <laughs> different to everyone besides you you didn't yeah. want it to taste different but i think <laughs> that's important when you think of like how the the flavor is kind of becomes the conduit between multiple different departments within a business
2: absolutely and
0: customer. you know having having that direct rapport and good relationship with operations yeah. means that you're able to to liaise with those people easily like with people that have a different skill set to you and a different level mm. of expertise or a a different uh, mm. kind of perspective And as a flavorist, you become that conduit that you you have different skills, but you need to be able to communicate and pass on information where it's necessary.
2: And and also be willing to learn. Like we used to make sauces and we used to use this starch, which was really robust and you could do almost anything to the starch. And then, of course, somebody said, well, it's not, you know, we want a natural starch. Mm -hmm. We want this. So that limited us to one or two other starches that operated a completely different way on cooking with pH. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, we had to relearn how to make sauces using a different raw material. But I spent a long time in the factory learning that, you know, and also learning that people go on tea breaks and keep this vessel cooking. Things like that, you know, which is not in the SOP, uh, but, but
0: how to, you know, avoid how to circumvent
2: that as well.
1: You're right. It's never in the SOP,
0: it's not in the uh, SOP, but it's in the SOP of, of how a normal day goes for a yeah. person. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's lunch fact, time. We were, I'm going to lunch.
2: We were actually talking about that the last time I was in America with, with, with the flavor guys. Uh, and we we're talking about a fermentation step. And he said, "The most important thing is, though, I've had to design this fermentation step so it's done within a shift." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah. because when we're doing this over two shifts, something always goes wrong. So he <laughs> says I've had to condense this down to make sure that we do it within one shift.
1: Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah. That's all good learning, right? So yeah. taking it, you know, taking that a little bit more seriously, uh, that connectivity with operations and production mm-hmm. supply chain. But you're right about being that that conduit between and that's why you need to be easy to do business with in yeah. your, in your company. Um, so that's to me is where the ego bit of it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, and flavorists tend to be a bit more down to earth than um, our, our, uh, our partners in fragrance. fragrance. Um, you know, I think, <laughs> I think we're, we are a bit more down to earth, but you want to be approachable um, yeah. so that if they do have an issue, they're not going to hide it they're gonna mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. yeah exactly talk
1: about it get you down there take a look at it they're more likely to call you up if they know you you know i have this thing with my formulas i always put blessed with a magic kiss at the end of mm-hmm. it i've always done that so you know if i go in, down to the factory and walk around which I, I i do because i love the people down there anyway they're always like we're blessing this we know we're, we're <laughs> doing that magic kiss thing don't know what it is but we're doing it <laughs> um And it's like, to be honest, one of the things that, you know, during COVID, there were some struggles in our operations to get people uh, for work, you know, because of COVID.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And I realized, you know, one of the things that, you know, we were trying to recruit, 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 and we had Amazon open up in Cincinnati. So Amazon of course pay lots of money and it's all you're doing is packing a parcel. The job, our operations staff have is actually quite hard and i Mm -hmm. really realize that you know it's it's not easy and there's a lot of smell and there's a lot you know it's complicated there's all these different ingredients you know you throw people in there and imagine if it's you like you're you you, you wouldn't know so training showing showing them what their the flavors go into you know showing new wins
3: Mm -hmm.
1: sharing knowledge making it so they know what they're doing is important but i think we don't always have the appreciation of that job is actually of a compounder in a factory is actually quite hard
3: yeah
2: actually no good point and again we were just uh love experience in making smoke flavors and, you know, working in a, flavor, a factory that makes smoke flavors from mm, the paralysis is almost being in Dante's seventh ring. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> it, it. it's a very unique, it's a very unique <laughs> process and you have to admire the people who work in that factory day in, day out, you know, it's, uh, yeah. So when you spend, when you spend time with those
0: guys, you realize they have the hard
3: job. Yeah. It's
1: just something to think about. I don't yeah. think we always... We always it's always that.
0: it's something that i think you know in terms of this appreciation of like different people's roles and responsibilities i like to think about it in in kind of the same as football or soccer um that the people who get who get paid the big bucks and who are who are the products are the footballers you know they're the ones on the field and maybe the manager and in a way we're kind of like the background staff yeah. we come up with what's happening but if it wasn't for the people in for, for personnel in operations, like our products wouldn't exist. You know, if they, if they are, if people are unable to make them or unwilling to make them, they won't be made. So yeah. they're kind of yeah. like the, you know, the, the messy, the messy of the company or the, who else is that? Yeah, I'm, not, the I'm not so Messi, into soccer. The messy <laughs> still had to kick a ball. He still had to kick a ball against the wall at some stage. Exactly. So everyone needs training. I like that. That was really right the way around. It's yeah. full circle. <laughs> so if, if you're worried about expertise, keep practicing everyone. And Marie, thank you so, so much. It's been a really fascinating conversation and, and actually just really great to meet you and, and get to chat. I think it's yeah, been quite. I no, appreciate
1: chill. it. It's been fun. Um, loved it. Loved uh, just, you know, talking about life, life as a flavorist. Right.
0: Yeah, Don't it's often really get really to cool. Do that. <laughs> um. So, also, if you'd like to, uh, give us that list of lazy flavorists, uh, we'll publish it on our website if you'd like. Oh,
1: perfect! I'll get that to you, uh, by tomorrow. Okay, <laughs> it would be lovely.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Thanks. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavours with BSF Flavour Talks. I hope that you've seen there is much more behind flavours. It is hard to acquire that right level of
1: experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour science,
0: stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review. I'm